Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsen-Balmbra. And I am Svara Ober. And today we are discussing The Piano Teacher, 2001 French language movie by Michael Haneke, starring Isabelle Huppert, Annie Giardot, Benoit Majumé, and Suzanne Lothar. And the cinematography is by Christian Berger. Haneke, regular. It's based on a novel from 1983 by uh, Elfried Schellinek. Yeah, the book is set, and the film was also set in Vienna. It's an Austrian book. Yet they speak French. A decision uh, mostly based uh, on uh, the casting, because Haneke... He actually wrote the script for another director initially, but that director couldn't get the film financed. So Haneke agreed to take it on and direct it himself, but he only wanted Isabel Hubert to play the role of Erica, the main role. He has a profound respect for her as uh, an actress. Well, and, and She's amazing. In his own words, she's uh, his favorite actress mm. ever. Yeah, this is also, he's kind of transitioned from his German language films at this point and working a lot in France. Yeah, and, and it's also the movie that sort of brought him a wider, worldwide acclaim as a director. Funny Games brought him some notoriety, but this movie really, you know, brought him into the warmth as a main, mainstay director in, in Europe and, and worldwide. Yeah, yeah, it won a fair bit of awards and stuff. I think both the actors got a few uh, awards for that. Benoit well deserved. And Isabel, yeah. Yeah, the acting is great. So the story is about the titular piano teacher, played by Isabel Hubert, uh, Erica who lives with her mother in this kind of apartment, but it's, it's kind of a weird claustrophobic relationship. I mean, she's in her late 40s, uh, and they sleep in the same bed, weirdly. Anyway, she's a quite uptight person. She's a very strict, classically trained piano teacher. Both are pretty uptight, I would say. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're difficult people. Really difficult. And she meets this young man, Walter Klemmer, through a concert she plays at. Uh, There's a friends. private recital. Yeah, he's a, a young man, but he's a bit of a virtuoso. He's a pretty good piano player for his age. And uh, he applies to her conservatory to be her student. And uh, Yeah, he seems really interested in her. Yeah, that's the thing. Stalking her, basically. Yeah, he seeks her out. She's quite intrigued by him as well. But um, it twists and turns in weird and unpleasant ways. Truly. It's basically the relationship between these three characters. Yeah. True psychosexual drama. Psychosexual. Yeah, I read that description on the Wikipedia page. Yeah. I found that exhilarating. I'm not sure if I have a good handle on that term. It makes me think of like a Cronenberg horror film or something. Yeah, it's not quite Cronenberg, but it does have some horrific scenes, uh, at least. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, this film, because he's still in the mode, Hanukkah, where he's exploring violence, but he's developed a bit... Conceptually, I think, from the other films we talked about, like Funny Games and Benny's Video. Benny's Video is very concerned with the media violence and Funny Games is a lot more about like the social interactive violence. And here, there's more of the just the relationship between characters and romance. Well, there is a lot of physical violence, but mm. I think it really revolves around the psychological mm. aspects of these characters and the yeah. sort of psychological jousting and dynamism between the characters mm. and the sort of extreme... Uh, lengths they go to to sort of satisfy their own sexual desires or kinks or 
And also psychological needs. It's quite complex on a sort of human level. Yeah, um, the plot is quite simple, but like the psychology is quite complex. Yeah, and it really does tie into his previous explorations of taboo subjects and extreme themes, especially his sort of fascination with pornography versus the obscene. In his own words, he really wants to explore the obscene, but he doesn't want to make it pornographic. He always tries to have this delicate balance. Well, not a balance between the two. He wants to earn the side of obscenity because he feels like art should be obscene and that's him talking in in a 2017 interview he did about this movie he really dislikes the way you know violence is portrayed in this pornographic way these days and that's not really problematized and yet when you touch on and view and explore these more difficult sexual dynamics it's often viewed with more horror and i think it's a really interesting viewpoint to explore in a movie and it's also interesting to note that this is the only movie he's made where he hasn't actually written the story himself well that's not true actually he has also made an adaptation of kafka's the castle but i mean it's worthwhile mentioning that when he read the book initially he wanted to adapt it and he had intended it to be his transition from television to film it's actually interesting also how he came to learn about this author because he read an earlier book of hers, I think in the late 70s, after he had worked on a movie. And when he read this first book of hers, he thought it was plagiarized from his TV movie. So oh, really? he got really angry. And then he found out she had written it during the production of this movie, so she couldn't have plagiarized it. And so he was instantly fascinated with her as an author That's since then. So he has this sort of long connection to her as an author, all the way dating back to the late 70s. And uh, through a lot of weird circumstances, he ended up, because he actually approached her, I think, back in the 80s. Yeah, that's right. To make a movie about this book. But uh, she turned him down mm. because she, she had accepted someone else's offer and the movie deal fell through and nothing was made and she was sort of mm. fed up with the whole movie industry at that point and she just turned down and then later as we discussed his friend got an offer to work with her again and mm. wanted him to to write the screenplay and he was quite annoyed by that <laughs> because he wanted to make the movie but he said he would do it for a hefty fee and so he did yet that fell through and then the producer i think just said why don't you just make the movie and so they did yeah, the rest yeah. is movie history and it's such an interesting combination because I mean, they're quite different, Hanukkah and Jelinek. Hanukkah has this cold gaze that's very meticulous. She is very sort of humorous and she has a lot of these internal monologues. She has a lot of these characters with these big cliches they're throwing around. It's really fun and very juicy. She has a quite dense style that's very enjoyable, but a little bit demanding as well. Yeah, and probably quite difficult to adapt to screen because there's a lot of monologues going on and that can always be super tricky. Like, do you add a monologue in the movie? Like, usually that feels very artificial. Yeah, right? and that's why I think he's a really good match because... He doesn't attempt any of that. No, uh, and in fact, he adapts the story quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, he condensates it and he adds some elements. Well, there's this specific thing with, because he doesn't want to use flashbacks and that sort of artificial editing style as, as he perceives it. So he invents a couple of characters, which is a young pianist, Anna Schober, and her mother, who kind of mirror Erica's 
own experiences. So he, he can kind of adapt those flashback elements without actually jumping in time, which is a really great move in an adaptation because yeah. it also allows Erica to interact with her projected younger self. Uh, yeah, and yet there's another level to it because it's not exactly them. Like mm. you don't really know yeah. the backstory of Erica. And so there's multiple levels mm. to it. And I think that works very well. And that choice Hanukkah made is really great in this adaptation. Mm. And another adaptation he actually did was he made the love interest more sympathetic because the book takes place, a lot of it, inside her own head. Mm -hmm. And so you can make characters a bit more one-dimensional and you can portray them a bit more negatively. But in a movie, that sort of doesn't work as well because you're not actually inside their head. So you have to view it in a more objective way. And so I think portraying him in a more sympathetic light is also a really smart move. It's just really a good adaptation. Yeah, I mean, it has to be said that, that Jelinek's style is very subjective. As you say, it's placed very much in her head and the language is very playful and she uses extreme cliches in a way that's very funny and it has a lot of psychological depth and the meat of the relationships and, you know, maybe not the plot point so much. They're kind of inspired by her own life. She doesn't like to think of it as autobiographical, but the relationship with her mother and the piano uh, background, a lot of that stuff is, yeah. is taken from her life. It's so. not quite autobiographical, but there are a lot of autobiographical elements. And a lot of that feels very psychologically true, but she doesn't have a background in psychology. That's kind of her writing herself. Which is interesting because Hanukkah does have that background in psychology. So he understands and connects with that in a really nice way. They kind of meet in the middle point. Like it's difficult to imagine a better, because it is an adaptation. The tone and the style is quite different, but it, it's almost like a pitch perfect way to handle it or to translate it to a film, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think if you did a more literal adaptation of it, it would probably not be a very good movie, actually. Yeah. It would lose some of its edge, I think. Actually. You would. And a lot of that subjectivity that comes with a sort of first person narrative can seem just uh, incredibly two-dimensional and plump and it can seem a bit crass when done in a sort of a movie treatment. And that's something that Hanukkah was very explicit about, mm. avoiding. Mm. And he succeeded in it. And a lot of it has to do with the casting because it's so well acted. Such brilliant casting mm. and also such great work by the actors for the movie. Yeah. I mean, they learned a lot of piano parts mm. just for the verisimilitude of them actually playing the pieces when you mm. see the music being played. Isabel Hubert, she had studied piano when she was younger and picked it up for the film. But apparently, Benoit, he was kind of like a natural. He just became surprisingly good in a short amount of time. Yeah, he hadn't touched a piano before. And it didn't come easy to him, actually. Mm. He he had to practice hard. Yeah. He practiced, like, really hard for the audition. And at the audition, you know, Hanukkah said, this isn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so they waited to shoot his piano scenes last. So mm. during the shooting of the movie, he was doing full days on set. And then he came home and practiced three to four hours on piano yeah. every day. So he, he did a really, really stellar performance and did a lot of hard work for yeah. this movie. And he had to learn uh, to play uh, hockey. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really had to work for that paycheck in yeah. this movie. It really paid off. He's so great in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're all like the mother as well, Anne Gyaro. She's such an intense person. And, like yeah. the manipulative relationship, like the power dynamics going between mother and daughter. The mother is just so charismatic. And, and the actress, of course, is a well-known actress that has been so prolific mm. and so charismatic too as a sort of style and female icon back mm. in the 60s and stuff. Mm. So she's great in this movie. Mm. And, uh, and she feels I, very classically French in a yeah. way. <laughs> and they both have the privilege of playing, you know, against uh, Hubert, who's just yeah. absolutely 
perfect in mm. this role. Another thing that Hanukkah does so amazingly well with adaptation, often you talk about the thing about film that you can't do in terms of literature is like literature, you can place things in the head. You can have the thoughts and the idea is that you can't do it in film. But I think he does that exactly. He doesn't use voiceover or anything like that, but he just films the faces, right? And the thought processes are there. And while you can't see them explicitly, you can still feel and sense them. And, and like the emotional state and the thought processes are very present. There's a lot of focus on faces and eyes and communication through body. It's very strong. Yeah, it is. At the same time, I, I found a, an interesting remark by Hanukkah regarding the sort of physical acting in this mm. movie. He said, yeah, the physical acting is not always so difficult. One of the real difficult parts is delivering the lines correctly mm. and stuff. Mm. There's this scene where she's cutting herself with a razor blade in the mm. bathroom. And he goes on in great length to discuss this scene. And he says, the real tricky part about that scene was just getting the blood to flow down from the <laughs> bathtub correctly. And they had this whole thing rigged up with this practical effects guy who had this blood vial in a sort of tube that went from below her robe or whatever. And they had to sort of finagle this thing into mm. working properly. And just acting like you're in pain, according to Haneke, is not very difficult. So he, he didn't put much stock by that scene at all, even though it's a great scene. But the scenes where Benoit and uh, Iber are in her room together, mm. that's sort of the scene. He pulls out as saying that is some incredibly, incredibly good acting. Mm, yeah. And it is. Yeah. It has a few standout scenes that are really strong. That uh, I mean, I saw this film maybe 15 years ago originally and uh, haven't seen it since, but it's been very present easy to remember some of these scenes there are some great scenes i would say one of the standout scenes for me is the scene uh, after the hockey practice mm. which is a continuous take it's pretty long like seven minutes yeah time. seven minutes long it's really good and i think hanuk is very good at using continuous takes that don't really stand out in a bad way like yeah. they flow really well in the context of the movie you might not really register that it is a long take no, most people don't really think about it, yeah. but it's the thing he uses explicitly mm. to really bring out emotionally difficult scenes in a way that feels natural. He talks about how in a really emotionally difficult scene, and especially one with sex and stuff, that it can be really difficult to just for continuity's sake to do different cuts because you sort of have to get on the same emotional level mm. for continuity. And it can be really, really tricky and difficult and often can lead to some really not good results in the end, even if you have some really good individual takes and individual cuts. Doing it all in one take really lends to the sort of uh, believability of it all. Yeah, it seems like it's an attitude he has that has a lot to do with the actors. Like, for their sake, to keep them in that space, it makes a lot more sense to do a, a longer take. Uh, that seems to be his focus rather than, like, the filmatic long take style, which is an, another approach. Yeah, it's about the acting to him and making the actors feel more mm. comfortable with it. And also, I think, and he mm. mentions it, that most actors would be more comfortable mm. doing these kind of long takes than individual scenes, especially, you know, theater-trained actors mm. are way more comfortable with that sort of thing. And I think it's better for everyone. But, of course, doing these incredibly long takes, very emotional long takes, is also incredibly tiring. And there's a funny anecdote he has about filming this particular scene. Yeah. I think they did 13 takes. And on the 12th take, the day they were going to finish that scene, they did a really good take. Mm. Really, really good. Mm. And then somebody says, like, a makeup artist is in frame. <laughs> and mm. the makeup artist was in frame. Mm. 
And they basically had to ditch that take. Yeah. It was it was Annoying. useless. It had no value. And Haneke got really pissed off <laughs> and said, uh, okay, you, this basically ruined this fucking thing. Now we have to start all over again tomorrow. But let's do one more take. Okay. And that's the take they ended right. up using. And it's absolutely amazing. It's interesting because he's been using long takes in his films, like in Benny's video and in Funny Games, as we talked about before. But they're thematically a lot simpler. Like there's not a lot of camera movement, maybe a little bit. But in this one... We go from a scene out on the hockey field and into like a, a corridor and into a back room and there's some reframing going back and forth. So it's complicated. Technically, Technically very complicated. Yeah. He talks about how there's different flooring with different sounds and stuff. You, yeah. you really have to take that into consideration. Mm. He had to go into the locker room and he had to have somebody there to remove his, his skates really quickly. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't just wait around for him too long yeah. because that would be boring as fuck. So there was all this trickery. Like there's the scene where she pukes and she had to get this thing into her mouth and yeah. get it out again correctly. And the sex scene, like, you can show that it was fake. You know, you wanted this realism yeah. to it. And the angles had to be just right. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. a really technically difficult scene yeah, to shoot. The compositions are very strong, particularly in the actual sex act. What happens is Walter, he comes from the hockey field and he's meeting up with Erica. At this point, they've had like a, a bump in their relationship. Kind yeah, of. he's sort of rejected her a bit yeah. and she's sort of stalking him now. It's turned around a bit and she tries to approach him and get him out of the locker room with the other guys and he kind of does that, not too hurriedly. And then she wants to take him into a different room where they can speak in private and she uh, initiates oral sex, which doesn't really work for him. And she lays down on the floor and gets up and there's a bit of back and forth there. And he's kind of put off. And she's in a very sort of vulnerable and desperate state where she's trying to uh, approach him emotionally. But he's very cut off. Eventually they do kind of end up in the corner behind some shelves where they're having sex. She's lying on the floor and performing oral sex on him. And there's a um, bunch of shelves around them with gym bags. and Hockey there's, uh, gear. Yeah. And there's a bar in the middle of the frame that cuts it very harshly in the composition. I mean, you don't really see much. You see some of the disheveled clothes and that stuff. There's not a lot of skin and it's quite uncomfortable. And you become very aware of yourself as a voyeur in this composition. Like the framing just makes it very obvious that you're someone standing to the side and looking at this thing. It's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, it's, this is really clear intent with the camera as the viewer. He talks about how doing sex is so difficult to not do pornographic in mm. a movie and how there's only two movies that have done it. One is Solo and the other is uh, most Roman Senses. I would say that there are several films that do this. I would say uh, that's preposterous and there are yeah. lots of movies that do <laughs> extremely well. But uh, mm. as a hyperbolic statement, it's a pretty good statement. Yeah, and he does it very well. You know, his sexual scenes, they're not sensual. He doesn't titillate... No, he doesn't titillate in any way. He titillates psychology, maybe, of the characters. Oh, yeah. But not like the bodily, romantic or intimate. That side of it, he's not so interested in. He's much more interested in like the state of the characters and dysfunctional relationships. Yeah, and that really cuts to the core of this movie. It's so much about these psychological dynamics mm. between the characters, and especially the psychological dynamics of the main character, but also the sexual dynamics between the 
two main characters mm. is very interesting because she's basically a sadomasochist. Well, basically a masochist. She gets off on being sort of punished and being hurt and fantasizes about it. And there's a lot of other like specific kinks and weird shit that she's into. And a lot of it doesn't really have to do with sex at all. A lot of it is power dynamics. And he seems really more just interested in a regular fuck or whatever. He seems more regular that way. But eventually he's sort of coaxed into this weird psychosexual relationship. And the way there's this push and pull is super interesting mm. and very well portrayed in the movie. Mm. Because initially he seems very put off. And then she sort of is the one who's pursuing him. Mm. And then he sort of gets into it a bit again. And then suddenly it seems like he's really getting into the violence of the thing. And it's a bit unclear how much of it is him sort of wanting to satisfy her and how much of it is him being actually aggressive. Well, the idea is that he's kind of uh, disgusted and sickened by her impulse towards violence or control in, in sex. That's one of the things that somehow feels a little bit dated about the film. I mean, this was written in the 80s, the book originally. Yeah. And like that kind of BDSM... That shit's tame by now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that kind of reaction that he has to BDSM makes him seem extremely naive and kind of stupid. Yeah, but I also like a bit of that reaction because mm -hmm. that is what she wants. She wants him to be appalled and well, treat her like shit because she gets off on it on a certain level. Like she does want him involved in like as a sexual partner, but she does want him to treat her like trash. Well, I'm not sure I agree about that. Uh, the way I read it, Maybe it's not so explicit in the film, but it's very explicit in the book is that she's, you know, had very few sexual partners and very sort of casual. I think like she's extremely vulnerable and inexperienced. And, you know, she exists in a world with very strong power dynamics, specifically with her mother. And that's kind of the lens of which she knows her sexuality. I don't think she wants him to hurt her. I mean, the whole point of BDSM, it's a matter of trust, you know, it's a matter of consent. It's like a negotiation of consent in a way. Well, yeah, but there's, there's a difference between fantasy and reality. And her fantasy right. is being treated like she, she doesn't want to be, probably want to be, well, maybe. Mm. She does seem to have some psychological hang-ups and some wires yeah. crossed. Uh, you know, sure. with her mother and the sort of student-teacher relationships yeah. and everything. She has a complex psychology, mm. but I do think on some levels she does want to be treated like shit, but it's connected with a sexual fantasy. Yeah, I read her as really fragile and vulnerable. The way she reaches out, she doesn't really have a language for these things properly. And what she wants is someone to be able to embrace that side of her. And, you know, when it later on in the film turns to violence, it's not the consensual trusting, navigating of boundaries. That's the way BDSM very uncontroversially deals with these things. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like she's part of a sort of SNM milieu or no, whatever. She, no, she... absolutely not. This is something she's navigated herself. And that's also why she's a bit clumsy as it. Like she's made this list. She's written this letter for him with a list of things that she wants him to do. And but that I... deals with consent because yeah. the letter is basically mm. she allows him to do these things under these parameters. Yeah. And it does seem like he's trying to follow it. So it does seem like they're sort of clumsily attempting mm. to navigate this sadomasochistic relationship. Yeah. 
and neither of them really have any idea what they're doing. But sort the of. difference is that she's gone her own whole life as an extremely rigid person, caught in like these insanely uncomfortable and weird power dynamics. And at this point, she's kind of been enraptured to him through his music and through his attention. And here she's trying to open up. And as she does so, he's disgusted, right? He's just sickened by, okay, well, can't we just make out and fuck, right? That's what he wants. He has a very simplistic idea of sexuality and things that deviate from it just disgust him on a fundamental level <laughs> and he's like first he just turns it off and when she kind of approaches him later on again as, as we talked about in the back room he's really put off and his masculinity is threatened and he doesn't know how to deal with it doesn't have any concept of what he's relating to so he's just physically disgusted yeah he does feel weirdly emasculated almost by this power dynamic that he doesn't really understand yeah. but I think one aspect of her sort of sexual psychology is that she really craves this transgressiveness, this boundary breaking mm. Mm. within personal relationships. Right. Like the way she acts with her mother after freaking out uh, the first sort of visit that he has with her. She really does just seem to want to... She seems so uptight and so controlled by these sort of strict, morally authoritarian Viennese high society. Mm. And that's also partly why Hanek definitely wanted to have the setting in Vienna as opposed to like Paris or whatever. Yeah. Because first of all, those sexual taboos wouldn't be as strong mm. there. And the high society would be different in quite a drastic way in this Viennese sort of society. Yeah, it's very culturally specific. Yeah, it's very culturally specific, even down to the costuming in the movie. They chose specifically costumes. Well, actually, the author helped pick costumes for the main character. So it's very deliberately done in a way that you really heighten the sense of understanding her need to want to break barriers. And you sort of almost implicitly understand that because the world she lives in is so fucking uptight. Mm. Yeah, I have the idea that she wants to transition away from the relationship with her mother, which is, you know, when she comes home late from work, her mother gets really upset. The film opens with Erica coming home. Yeah, so it definitely sets the stage. Yeah. This is the sort of dynamic we're dealing with in this movie. This is the relationship, a really fucked up relationship with her mother. It's like, it's the Norman Bates thing. Like, this creates weird and warped psychological uh, issues. Yeah, right. Because she comes home and you can hear the television in the background and the mother comes and asks her where she's been. It's three hours since you've finished work and Erica says, well, I've been walking around. Oh yeah, for three hours. And she kind of tears away like the bag she has and takes out like a dress that Erica bought which is like a threat to the mother because it's something to attract a, a man or whatever. And they have a scuffle and the mother rips the dress and then Erica tears out their hair and hurts the scalp or whatever of the mother. So it's a, it's a physical direct confrontation and then you go to the living room where they're still a little bit aggressive. And, and then they, there's more emotional confrontation yeah. and they cry and they, and they hug. And then you can tell the, the mother really manipulating her feelings because I think we all feel that Erica is not in the wrong in this situation. But her mother's really good at pulling her strings. And the mother's kind of, horrible, by the way. <laughs> yeah, she's very controlling. At one point, Erica has to substitute for her student, which she sabotages by putting glass in the pocket of her coat. But at the recital, the mother of the student, mm. played by Suzanne Lothar, asks the mother, oh, aren't you proud of your daughter? She's playing at this recital. And she's like, what? No. She's only substituting for this student. Yeah, yeah. This is nothing to be proud of. Yeah, you yeah. can really tell the dynamic between the mother of the student and Erica's mother. There's a lot of parallels there in terms of the mother of a student at some point. She says, we have sacrificed everything for a career. And then Erica corrects her saying, your daughter sacrificed everything. And that's very clearly pointing to her feelings 
You know, a mother has been controlling in a similar way. And Erica's life has been a matter of sacrifice. You know, she's yeah. had a very strict linear path where she's been forced into. She's lived that. So she wants to separate those two entities in her own mind. And she does point it out. Yeah. And this scene that you just mentioned, her student is having an audition for a recital with an opera singer, a male opera singer. We've seen it previously being really nervous, being really, you know, insecure about it. And, and Erica being kind of like, do a good job, you'll get it. You know, she's not very emotionally accepting. No, or she's, open. she's horrible to her students yeah. too. She's like J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. <laughs> she's this sort of uh, despotic teacher that demands perfection in every sort of emotional nuance of these pieces by Schubert and stuff. And she's horrible. I can't really speak to it on a directly musical level because I'm not too familiar with how classical musicians are trained. But I know in jazz and in popular music, you can't really treat your students like that because you don't create good musicians that way. They just become nervous wrecks and they and they fail. But I think this is based on Yelenek's experience because she was trained as a classical pianist. Yeah, and and that's why uh, I prefaced that because I think, especially in old cultural institutions of classical music, I think that can probably be some of the most nerve-wracking musical education you can possibly be exposed to. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those situations do occur and maybe still occur. She is not a nice person. She's not treating her students nice. And of course, it has a lot to do with her implicit history with her mother. But yeah, they're not really pleasant people, any of them. I mean, to call her uptight is, is a kind way to put it. <laughs> She's just... very highly strung and very demanding. She humiliates. There's a lot of humiliation going yeah, in different directions. It's not, it's not my tempo. It's not mm. what she says. It's mm. more like it's not my emotional bandwidth. You're not really understanding the emotional nuances mm. of Schubert's tortured soul as he wrote this particular passage. It's not piano enough. It's not pianissimo. Well, she, it's fucking annoying. Yeah, she's very rigid. But actually, th this scene with the female student where Erica leaves the audition as the student is playing, she's doing very well. She leaves and she's visibly upset. And this is another one of the longer takes. And she ends up finding a glass, putting it in a silk scarf and crushing it with a boot and putting the glass in the pocket of the female student, which is a absolutely cruel and disgusting thing to do. But this is where I think it's almost like the only act of kindness she does, in a sense, in a very weird and twisted sense, because she's probably ruining the career of the, the young woman, but she's also releasing her from this kind of high-strung, rigid and unpleasant life that yeah, she's, she's had. She's changing her own past, really. Or it can be construed at that. Of course, in reality, she's just uh, violently hurting another person. Like, you can't really... Well, like only viewed within her psychology can yeah. that sort of be acceptable. Yeah, in a way she's releasing this young woman from the kind of similar fate that she's had. I think that's her motivation. She's not doing it out of jealousy. She's not doing it out of aggression towards the... I mean, there's some element of you mustn't let this student surpass you. But I don't feel like that's her driving force in this case. I feel like she's much more invested in those ruined dynamics and unpleasant life paths. Well, I think there's a very important sort of dynamic of also she's a bit jealous of her, both in the attention that she gets from her sort of love interest and the way she she's actually quite good at playing. And of course, if she wanted to change her destiny, she could do it in another way. Like, talk to her. Don't, you know, <laughs> maim her for life. <laughs> like, she's not dealing with this in any sort of responsible way. 
Just I, I agree in principle, yeah. But I think that's her way of trying to both navigate her own past and it is possible to imagine that this person's life goes a very different direction. I mean, I've known people who classically with the music and song who ended up not going that direction and having a much easier time. And yeah, yeah, totally. It's just she does mm. that in sort of the best emotionally stunted way she can. Mm. And that's by, you know, seriously injuring somebody so they never can use their hand right again. But it's a really funny scene, sort of funny in a tragic sense. It does sort of have a bit of humor to it, this movie. Absolutely. In the, especially like the weird interpersonal sort of moments mm. between Walter and Erica. Those sort of moments between them that are pretty funny. I mean, they act really intensely and weirdly mm. and they're both well especially erica's just a fucking weird person it is kind of funny to see her torment her students and and yeah. the sort of the relationship between the mother and the daughter is just also really weird and kind of funny and erica's such a hypocrite as well like she <laughs> yeah. she has these scenes where she goes to like a sex shop and watches porn and at some point she catches one of her students standing around with his mates looking at some porn mags and she goes up behind him and comments on it a little bit and then later on in the piano session she really humiliates him and degrades him for you know natural sexual interest and she's much further into that you know sexual deviant scene though. yeah it's almost like she's critiquing herself and also i think that's part of another aspect of her sort of wanting to break interpersonal barriers and transgress in these sort of socially really unacceptable ways just communicating with your student in a porn shop i think that was just a grocery store something with a porn section uh, well either way interacting uh, uh, with him in that way and then yeah. uh, sort of reprimanding him for it later it's just really weird and, yeah. and sort of power tripping and doing incredibly inappropriate things mm. basically like what fucking teenager isn't interested in yeah. sex like it's so hypocritical it's a very minor role this character but he's kind of a he's a young kind of a charming very sort of a, you can tell he has a hard work ethic but he's not probably not going to be a, a great pianist but he seems like a charming young man. And at the very end of the movie, he has a small interaction with a, a girl who has the scarred hands. And he seems like genuinely pleased to see her. I think that kind of background dynamic is, contrasts uh, very well with the sort of toxic existence yeah. of Erica. Yeah, those sort of relationships are so, they're quite funny. I mean, it's a mm. sad and tragic movie by all standards. There's definitely humor. Yeah. And uh, another thing that Hanek talks about is how. A lot of movies, you know, the character undergoes this change. And it's usually for the better. But in this movie, there's a change. And it's not really for the better. <laughs> no, really it's not. just for the worse. So it ends on this really depressive note. And I like that so much. It's really, like, sincere, I think. Sincere and quite honest in the way it portrays dysfunctional humanity. I mean, I think you can, if you stretch your imagination a bit, I think you can think of the ending... So, sort of a release for Erica where she kind of moves on in a sense. Yeah, like uh, a kind of catharsis mm. in a sense maybe, but you'd have to be quite liberal mm. with your viewpoints there. She does stab herself at the end and she makes this really great face while she does it. Yeah. Which is in reference to the actual text yeah. where, where, um, where she writes that uh, she, she makes this horse-like grimace. Mm. <laughs> and that scene was partly quite difficult to shoot too because they use practical effects for everything in this movie. Mm. So she had to wear this chain mail under her shirt and there was this uh, sort of blood bag. And for every take, they had to replace the shirt, 
the chain, <laughs> the blood bag, and like everything. And she had to do this really quite weird expression. Yeah. So uh, it took a lot, but she nails that scene. It's really good. Yeah, they did a lot of takes for that. And I think it was kind of difficult to figure out how to interpret but it looks so wounded and ugly. It's very striking. You know, Hubert described the scene as almost Hitchcockian, where you've had the knife reveal. She walks into this concert hall. She's like seen the different people. She, we've seen Walter Klemmer. Yeah. You're just sort of waiting to see what she's going to do with this knife. Yeah. And you kind of have the feeling that she might attack Walter Klemmer because he's physically assaulted her just the scene before. And that um, might have been her intention. You don't really know in the movie. Well, it looks like it because yeah. she's walking towards him, but he's kind of part of a gang and he has a looks like perhaps he's with another a woman and they run up the stairs and she's just standing there and her face just twists. Her action is very simple. It's just hand going up to her right side where the heart is. It's very sort of quick, direct action with a knife and you just have this facial expression which is twisted and, you know, it's, it feels really sad and hurt and... It feels very uncinematic and that's what mm. I love about it. It mm. feels so human. Yeah, very it raw. It doesn't feel stylized at all. It feels like something you wouldn't put in a movie and that's what I love about it. But actually thinking on it, the fact that she doesn't actually attack Walter, mm. it leads more credence to a more sort of cathartic view of the ending because she doesn't decide to lash out against others as she has done her entire life against her students, mm. against sort of her hatred, against her mom mm. and everything. Everything is always other people's fault in her eyes. Of course, she falls herself too, but she really takes it out on other people. Mm. But in the, the ending, she, she chooses not to take it out on Walter, but instead she takes it out on herself. Mm. And it does seem to be a sort of point of self-actualization or self-realization where really she really does come face to face with her own foibles and shortcomings there and that is depressing but it's also sort of maybe the only way forward to heal yeah hubert he, she actually talks about this in interviews and she says the grimace kind of illustrates the double meaning of the melodrama and the criticism of the melodrama of the film and that she's unable even to commit this sort of suicide that your romantic heroine typically would do and there's a dark irony of the failed suicide and the trickle of blood is kind of like the, the trickle of life as well and the, the film doesn't condemn her to death it allows her to live it's pathetic maybe but it could also be seen as a new beginning and coming to terms with the pain yeah it's it, me paraphrasing it's me. ambiguous and i like that mm. i really like that i think hanek is quite good at being ambiguous in his movies, he's not always very good at being ambiguous when he talks about his movies, but he does have an intention of being ambiguous. He does like to enter these spaces on screen where you don't really know the intention of the characters, the explicit thoughts of the characters. Mm. Like Erica can be quite difficult to read. Like you read a lot of emotion and mm. thought processes on her expression, but sometimes you don't really know how she's reacting because she's so emotionally stunted and played so well that during a lot of scenes, you're not really clear if she's incredibly sad or just not responsive or whatever is going on. It's quite nuanced and just very well done. Yeah, it's Hanukkah style is very, you know, you're held at an arm's length and yeah, yeah. you're always the observer. You're not subjectively in the space. So you are interpreting what you're seeing with the characters. Absolutely. And leaving it up to the audience to do some legwork and actually connecting the dots and connecting their own dots and making their own thoughts mm -hmm. about it is something that is incredibly central to unpleasant cinema in general. Mm. And also to Hanukkah's mode of constructing movies, really. I mean, he talks about it and he says he doesn't think explanations work in movies. You can't explain too much. Mm. Like that makes for a really boring movie in his eyes. And I completely agree. Like exposition, is that what it means? Yeah. Well, exposition 
reason. That's specifically the reason why he chose to depict this uh, up-and-coming student and her mother. Mm. Because it's not exposition. Mm. They are characters in the movie. Yeah. You don't have to tell a tale about them at all. They mm. interact and it's a natural part of the mm. movie. And that's what he means when he says that explanations don't work in movies. You sort of have to bake it into the loaf of the movie mm. and make the audience infer. Yeah, that's a great example. It's almost like textbook example of how to, you know, make something psychologically and character driven true and doing the kind of thing that, as we talked about, might do in a flashback. Otherwise. Absolutely. Like if I was writing a textbook on movie making, I would definitely use that as an example of show, don't tell. It's really good work of disposing with unnecessary exposition. And Haneke really doesn't use exposition in any way in his movies, unless it serves a very specific purpose. Like in The White Ribbon, there's a narrator. Yeah. And I love that. But that is a very deliberate method of informing the audience. Yeah. In a sort of Brechtian way. And I do think there's a connection between Brecht and Haneke. They do have this very deliberate way of working with drama. And you and Nikolai Liebecker talked about this, the way that sort of Brecht wants to avoid this emotional massaging of the audience. Mm. And I feel like Haneke is very much thinking along those same lines. He doesn't want to not just underestimate the audience, but he doesn't want to lull them in with sort of pornography and stylization that doesn't serve any purpose. He really wants to make you think. Yeah, as you say, he is very deliberate. And when he evolves his style or deviates from his style or ideas of film form, usually there's a very specific reason. And one of the things that I find quite interesting about this film that I hadn't thought so much about before was, you know, the other two films we talk about, the camera is very focused and interested in like actions, like hand washing up blood or opening drawers. And in this film, that kind of a gaze is focused on the piano. So you have several of these scenes downward pointing towards the piano with hands playing. And here you can see the act of the music. It's the physicality of it. It's the personality. Erica says at some point that you can play all the right notes of Beethoven, but it's better to have the feel than to play it right. You know, you can't do Beethoven right just by doing the right notes. Yeah, like she says, it's better to play the wrong note yeah. than to play the wrong emotion in Beethoven. That's and, right. Uh, and it's a good point. And this film does a great job of communicating, like, the physicality of the hands. Walter Klemmer, one of our first reactions to his playing, which... It's very good, but he's a bit of a show-off, right? And she picks that up really quickly. And when he plays, he does the right things, but his interest is to be seen, right? His love is of his audience as much as of the music itself. Yeah, and she seems almost personally offended by that because she connects with the composer in a sort of very personal way, like he was an ugly man. He was a tormented man. He had uh, psychological issues. He went to the madhouse or whatever. Yeah, this is a specific quote because in the first interaction, Erica quotes Adorno talking about Schumann and this piece that Walt has just played at the recital with some family friends. She tells about this quote where Schumann is a fraction before he's bereft of reason. He knows he's losing his mind and it's tormenting him, but he clings on one last time. And being aware of what it means to lose oneself before being completely abandoned, right? And he describes him as, you know, he was an ugly man. And it sounds like Erica's describing herself there, Absolutely. right? It fits perfect for her. And I think that's sort of a reason why she doesn't really feel any empathy for Walter, because he plays the correct notes, but he doesn't play the correct feel. Or he's too flashy. He doesn't really understand the psychology of the piece, even if he plays very well, and he does. 
And she's also incredibly picky, of course. But she is also attracted to him at the same time. So there's a, she antagonizes his style, but she's still attracted to, yeah, the music is still beautiful and, and he has passion. So there is something genuine as well, in a sense. But that works on both sides because mm. he's also repulsed and attracted to her. And so this push-pull dynamic is just really great in the movie. It works on so many levels and it's throughout the movie, this sort of ebb and flow of how this dynamic works. It's incredibly good. Yeah, there's a lot of elements to talk about in this film. And you were talking about costumes earlier. One of the things I really like is, you know, she puts on like the pervert's costume when she goes to these sex shops. She wears this big trench coat and these big leather gloves and this scarf around her head. Uh, and it's interesting. Shishek has a comment about her watching this hardcore porn in the booth. He says that the way she watches porn isn't to get excited. She watches it like a pupil. She's there to learn to get excited, right? She's sitting there, not invested in like the sensual or sexual element as such. She's coldly gazing and she picks up some paper towels with semen stains and sniffs it. It's almost academic, right? Yeah, she's, she's like a Vulcan. She's like Spock. She's like, <laughs> your human emotions confuse and interest me. <laughs> yeah, she's fascinated by it, but she doesn't really empathize or understand it quite. And she wants to explore it. It is interesting. But that quote, the Burberry quote, is uh, apparently like really specific to its sort of time and place mm. in Vienna. And apparently for like the last 50 years or so, it's it's sort of been uh, sort of a, a hallmark, uh, sort of a costume of that certain niche of Viennese society. That sort of white blouse, Burberry coat. That yeah. was very specific. And it was also chosen by the mm. author. To me, it just looks like something someone who's going to flash you wears. Like, you can just open it up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more of a sort of happy coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she didn't think of that. But it does work beautifully. I really like the costuming. I really like the set designs. One of the really important things in this movie, of course, is the music. And the mm. music is very well selected and done. There is a lot of music talk in the book. Of course, you can't do it in the same way. I feel like actually Haneke did a really great job of this because he's also very interested in these kinds of composers and music. And he selected the pieces very carefully to suit the narrative, yeah. to suit the movie. I and, think he has uh, some of the favorite composers as well. He spoke of you know, Schubert and Schumann and that sort of stuff as his favorite stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's just such a natural fit. Mm. He's perfect for that because he really understands and, and loves that music. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about it, but I think it bears repeating that mm. this sort of combination of her as an author and him as a movie maker is really just a match made in heaven. Their strengths and weaknesses really like fill out each other to make a really, really compelling movie. I had actually a quote from Jelinek about the Erica character that I wanted to read. And she says that this is all the bloody, in the truest sense of the word, consequence of the fact that a woman is not allowed to live if she claims a right that is not hers and that she obtains only in the rarest of cases, artistic fame. The right to choose a man and also to dictate how he tortures her, that is, domination in submission. This she is not permitted. Indeed, for a woman, almost everything beyond the bearing and raising of children is a presumption. High culture is the master. The female piano teachers are serving maids. They have no right to any creative energy, not even to a life of their own. And she says she carried this to the extreme in her texts. It is a very good point. And what also say, like the sort of idea of these old masters of classical composition is very patriarchal and Eurocentric mode of thought that is 
incredibly pervasive in music theory, actually. Mm -hmm. Like most Western textbooks of musical theory really only deal with Western classical composers when it comes to the framework of teaching musical theory, which is kind of strange because there are definitely other ways of teaching music. Like there are many different modes of musical notation, etc. And there are many female and persons of color composers that are also worth mentioning and musicians in different mm, ways of actually absolutely. doing musical theory and understanding musical rhythm and musical notation, all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting how this sort of backdrop of super well-known classical male composers in like mm -hmm. this stuffy Viennese sort of society really contrasts with her struggles as a sort of sexual being and a woman. I'm not sure if how much of a direct critique of it it is, but it works very well as a setting. I feel it's more like an examination of you know relationship dynamics than it is a social critique of an aspect of society. Yeah. But that's fair. I mean, you have both mm. things present, mm. for sure. That's a sound of a good movie, in my view, that you can sort of infer different or explore different ideas in your own head when you're watching it, bouncing these different themes and ideas, and that they sort of resonate and have a certain synergy within the movie. And it certainly does. There are a lot of different levels you can enjoy this movie on and think about it. Mm. The film's painful on so many levels, I think. Yeah. I mean, you have like the psychological violence, like emotional abuse and these weird unsettling relationships and uncomfortable power dynamics. But there's also like a vulnerability, this humiliating degradation and rawness, honesty, characters really stripped bare. It's hard to watch. It's really embarrassing and sad. And the perverse side of these things are almost the least troubling. Yeah, you know? it's more the sadness and the loneliness and the sort of lack of real human connection and understanding. It feels so desperate. Specifically, there's one scene where Erica is tearing up. She's had one of these confrontations with Walter. He's been violent and she's really desperate. And she's laying in the bed with her mother where she usually sleeps. And her mother, as usual, is just, you know, coldly not engaging with her on an emotional level. And Erica just comes on top of her mother and starts to kiss her and almost engages, you know, sexually, pins her down. And like the transgressiveness of the physicality is unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, her mother kind of pushes her away after a while and, and she starts to cry. But just the vulnerability of that and that emotional state is so painful and really upsetting. It's horrible. And I think what makes it even worse is the way the mother reacts to it. It's like she doesn't really acknowledge it. And mm. then she goes on to like, you shouldn't spend your energy on this. You have a recital tomorrow. She just lets that lead into like more berating. And Erica doesn't really get a real response or even communication mm. with her. Even when she like is so incredibly transgressive mm. and desperate mm. for something. It's a really sad scene. Yeah, she really exposes the fragility of her emotional state. And there's, there's no leeway to be had with the mother. Yeah, like in a lot of ways, I feel like she behaves like an abused child would. Like she lashes out. She has a lot of stuff she hasn't processed within her. And a lot of it leads to like these sexual things that I'm not sure is, it feels like she doesn't understand where a lot of this is coming from. Mm. It's just a lot of crossed wires in her head. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fucking sad. And that's the real unpleasant part of this movie. It's not really the violence so much as it is the sort of emotional, complete isolation and desperateness. It's harrowing. 
And it's also very interesting how it kind of navigates the different characters, like Walter Klemmer. He's a very charismatic, good-looking, fit young man, plays sports, does culture. Yeah, real charmer. And he's good at navigating social spaces. There's a scene where he's helping the female student. She's sitting there really nervous before a recital, and he goes up to her and he says something. We don't hear it, but, you know, she starts to laugh. He's good at easing up a situation. And he's really socially aware, but he has almost a total lack of intersubjectivity, I think. When he's confronted with Erica's distorted self, he doesn't seek to see things from her perspective. He's not willing to or able to kind of look at what's happening and thinking, what's behind this? What's the reason when she's talking about sexual violence? And, you know, she gives him this list with you should hit me and you should do all this sort of things. And instead of looking at where's this coming from and what's this doing and he just relates with disgust, right? He doesn't have an actual interest in other people in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's why he reacts with disgust because he can't really empathize or understand and he doesn't seem to want to initially. It's not really something he's ever been confronted with before. I think life for him has been pretty easy. He Mm. he is talented. Mm. He uh, is gregarious, has a way with people, Mm. you know, charming. And Erica is none of these things, really. She's had to work really hard to Mm. get where she is and she doesn't really get any recognition Mm. from anyone. Least of all her mother. (laughs) Yeah, especially not her mother. So, yeah, he, he is an interesting character the way he sort of reacts to this. Like, that makes him an interesting character to me. Like, he initially recoils, but then he sort of, he seems to make an effort. Yeah, when she meets up with him again and just really bears herself really desperately, which is kind of thing that he maybe would have liked in a different context, her open up a submissive side. That seems like the kind of dynamic he would normally be comfortable with. But in this context, he's... So he starts to kind of lean in, oh, maybe we'll try this again. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it turns like the next to last scene. That's him showing up at their apartment, middle of the night, knocking on the door. Erica comes out to let him in and he physically assaults her and beats her. And ostensibly he tries to do some of the things on her list. But he's not listening to her, he's not looking at her, he's not talking to her. He's just doing some of the things in frustration and he asks, is this what you want? And he slaps her around and she says, this isn't what I want. And, you know, it's very clear that that's his frustration, right? That's his being upset with that thing she asked of him or that communication. And he's not looking at her, he's not understanding her and he's he hasn't had like the sexual satisfaction yet. They haven't consummated intercourse. And like this kind of maze he feels like he's been pushed through, which is her, you know, way of navigating sexuality. He's fed up with that. So he beats her a bit. And then while she lies there passively, nose bleeding and everything, well, he, he sexually abuses her. And she's completely stiff. And afterwards he says like, that's what you wanted, right? That's how it has to be. You can't, you know, fuck around with men like that. And he kind of, you know, normalizes the situation really, which is very nicely observed psychologically, I think. It is. And I think like the boundary between or like the difference between consensual and non-consensual is very blurred at that point. Because he does seem to be following this sort of this shopping list of her sexual needs. But at the same time, she doesn't really respond in a way that like she doesn't seem to be enjoying it. Like maybe once she's she's actually experiencing these things she's fantasizing about, she finds out it's not really like she imagined. Maybe it's difficult to say. And I think that's in large part why that scene works so well and is so difficult to watch. You don't really know the intensity of what's going on and it feels very, very difficult and and hard. Well, to me, it feels very non-consensual and that's because the violence isn't really on her premise, right? It's just his frustration and, you know, he's not meeting her or trying to understand what this is. And it's not a bond of trust. 
that's just him transgressing over her because of his frustration and his expectations of sex and unwillingness to try and understand what yeah, he is. Yeah, I think it boils down to when he does try to do what she wants him to do. He's playing the right notes, but he's not playing the right feeling. He doesn't really understand it, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's that theme of him not really managing to empathize with someone on that level and not really wanting to, or maybe not even being able to go to that point or to that place emotionally mm. or sexually. He's still just disgusted, right? And he wants yeah, to like sex. he does it, but he doesn't enjoy it. Mm. He feels repulsed by it. Mm. And I think that repulsion also feeds into his mm. like actual aggression. Mm. And it's, yeah, that whole thing is just such a sexual and emotional mm. mess mm. that, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And there's a scene earlier, which is, I think, maybe my favorite scene in the film. It's, it's really good at any rate. Right after she's crushed the glass put in the pocket of a student and... The student has her hands bloodied and Walter comes up next to her and, and sees what happens. She almost reveals herself in the way she talks to him. I think he probably picks up that she did it. If not explicitly, then there's some dynamic. Anyway, she goes away and he follows her up into the bathroom and he, he locks the door and kind of gets her out. And he starts with a very passionate kiss. And then she starts to set boundaries and starts to introduce some of these we have to do these things my way and now. And how that navigates her controlling him in a way that he finds very emasculating. Yeah, he really dislikes being told what to do. And it's clear that he's in it for himself. He's into getting his own satisfaction out of that sort of meeting. He wants that passionate affair, right? He wants that classical just sex and passion and stuff. And when she starts to having these controlling things, she says, you do like this or I'm leaving, right? Initially, he's a bit confused and put off and he tries to do it. I mean, she basically ends up just wanking him, not allowing him to touch her, which he has a difficult time not doing, right? So it's a bit of a back and forth. He's really constrained. But at the very end, when that situation finished, he kind of jumps around almost like a horse. He says, uh, all right, we'll get it better next time. And uh, he's kind of enthused a bit, even though obviously greatly frustrating coming to some sort of a sexual conclusion. Yeah, and like she talks about, well, I'll give you a list of rules of what mm. you can do and mm. stuff, and he just doesn't seem interested in mm. what whatsoever. Mm. That's what I mean by he's only interested in his own sexual gratification mm. there because he's really not even willing to entertain the idea. Like, yeah, he accepts the letter and stuff. He doesn't want to read it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to even think about it. He just wants this to be like a regular love affair. And it should be pretty obvious for him from their first sexual encounter that it's not going to be that. Like, he's super myopic because he just wants to fuck or whatever. He wants this regular sexual relationship. And she wants something different. And he doesn't seem to be capable of really understanding that or engaging that. It's really so well acted, yeah. I gotta say. It's a great film. You know, I think it's my favorite. I mean, he has so many, but this is kind of a halfway point for me where he's still invested in like the exploration of violence very strongly and has a lot of those conceptual ideas of what films should be. And, you know, the latter part of his career has more like exploring themes of post-colonialism and society in some broader ways. Those films are absolutely great, but I think this is like the perfect middle point of that stuff. Well, I think he's always interested in dealing with society, mm. but it feels more embodied in that sort of unpleasant movie way, in the feel-bad film way of mm. sort of reaching beyond some high-level theoretical framework and just punching you in the stomach with some really harrowing shit that makes you really consider what's going on. And that is a really, really interesting part of his movie-making career. Mm. So yeah, I completely agree that this really does hit a sort of sweet spot for me too when it comes to Hanukkah. 
It's really, it's a beautiful movie. It's well shot. It's yeah. like the cinematography is great. It's very precise. It's very precise. It's not flashy, mm. but it's, I point, it's very technical. Mm. The music uh, is beautiful. Yeah. The music is really beautiful, both well-performed and beautifully selected and well-used in the mm. movie. I don't really have much negative to say about this movie, apart from the fact that it's not a pleasant viewing experience, <laughs> of course. It's not a positive setting. That might be a positive. I mean, in my view, it is a For positive. For some of us. <laughs> it, in my view, it is a positive. It's also maybe the, like the purest conception in my head of what Hanek really tries to do with unpleasant movies. He does want to really not focus on the pornographic mode of violent and transgressive movies. He really wants to humanize it and make you think about it and not take shit for granted when you watch movies. And I think that's probably his most effective way of doing that in his sort of cinematic authorship. It's uh, really good. Yeah, he says when he leaves the cinema, if he's different from when he walked in, like he's been puzzled in some way, that's he knows when it's been worth it. That's a really good film. And that's what he wants to do to the audience. Yeah, I mean, if you make some critics at Khan Feint, you know you've reached some <laughs> hearts and souls. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Do you have a recommendation for us this episode? I do. It's a quite simple recommendation. It's a really short indie game. And it's a, it's a trilogy, actually, of three short video games. And it's called Hands of the Killer, which is the first installment. And then you have Voice of the Killer, I think, and, and Jewel of the Killer. And it's just a really... Uh, like, the art style in this game is so sort of disgusting and ugly and <laughs> yeah. really beautiful. In what way? It's sort of reminiscent of like, um, if you remember the old 3D screensaver on like Windows 95 and stuff, yeah. that sort of 2D, 3D graphics, okay. with like uh, two-dimensional sprites in a three-dimensional space. It's really quite disgusting and beautiful and uh, ugly. And the story is just weird. There's little to no interactions you can do in the game. You just sort of travel around these sort of weird claustrophobic environments in this apartment building in the mm. first game. And you uncover a lot of uh, horrible shit, and it's, and it's great. And I can't really say much more without sort of a spoil. Well, but spoiler. is it like graphically horrible, or how is it unpleasant? <laughs> well, it's unpleasant because there is this sort of really undertone of sinister horror and like uh, gruesomeness that permeates the thing. But on top of that, there's this sort of upper layer of like humor and sort of lightheartedness. Mm. And the mix is sort of very appealing to me. But it is quite unpleasant in a good way, I would say. Oh, and it's very short. Like, you can play it in like 10 minutes. Okay, right. That uh, sounds interesting. And it's sort of a kind of a walking simulator almost. Like, it's not really about the gamification of it. It's mm. really more just a bizarre, disgusting place. And uh, I like it. And I suggest uh, you play it and mm. check it out. And it's free, actually. It's I think right. it's pay what you want. So Is it point and click? No, it's sort of a third-person adventure sort of thing. Nice. Do you have a, a cool recommendation? I do. You know, Panatich is like a great example of a male depicting like female character. Yeah. But there is this wonderful subreddit called Men Writing Women. Oh yeah, it's great. Where you have just snippets of literature of like male authors, you know, descriptions of uh, women. And, you know, often embarrassingly 
sexualized and bad. There was also like memes or like parts of commercials. There's also stuff, but like the main focus is like literature. And there's a good chance you're going to find some of your favorite authors there writing some something that really it's really embarrassing and stupid. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know Hemingway is often. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's a typical. Yeah, uh, he pops up there uh, every now and again. Yeah, if F. Scott Fitzgerald is often described as a low-hanging fruit for this type of criticism in the threads. Which is quite funny, I think. You know, initially it's it's quite funny and, and kind of weird, but, you know, the more you look into it, it's really depressing to see. It creates a really clear picture of what the male gaze is. If you hadn't formulated for yourself clearly before, like how sexualized and embarrassing and stupid. And often like super idealized and just weirdly unempathetic. Yeah. And like throwing in like her plump breasts were deliciously resting on the table or something like really awkward how prevalent that is. Yeah, and sometimes it's just really horribly badly written like her intelligent thighs really knew what they were doing or something like that. It really does put things into perspective and it makes you appreciate authors who do write, <laughs> you know, good characters of both genders. It's not a given. And in fact, it seems to be more more of a norm, at least when it comes to more like 20th century male authors writing women. It's often uh, quite almost caricature-like. Mm. And it's not only always like just badly written, but I think there's a quote by Kurt Vonnegut that says, he's talking about a, a woman that she's like an invitation to make babies. It's awkward, right? I don't want to hear that shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, a lot of it is just weirdly sexualizing them yeah. in a way that's uh, really off-putting. And especially like these days, I think people are more aware of it. Yeah. Which is why there are so many like famous authors there that mm. just write women horribly. But some yeah. authors I like do write women badly. And mm. it's, it's like, you just got to deal with it. Like Cormac McCarthy, for instance, he can't write women characters for shit, but his books are good. You're not reading about the female characters. So, you know, it doesn't negate an entire authorship. Well, it puts it into perspective, I think. And that's the interesting thing about this subreddit, that it really makes clear how the female body has been framed over time. Yeah, that's the unpleasant aspect of that subreddit <laughs> because initially it's, it's more funny, but then you see the sort of systematic horrors of, <laughs> of the male gaze, I guess. Yeah, so we've focused on some directors for these last episodes and we're shifting our focus a little bit. We're going to look at some animated movies. And I know this is one you've been looking forward to, Sweater. Hell yeah. The next episode is Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, I can't wait to to cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> prepare to cry. Yeah. Prepare to cry edition. Yeah, much looking forward to that. Haven't seen it in ages. Me uh, neither. It's going to be going to be good. Yeah. So we hope you'll come back to listen to that. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Yuskaning and Sverre Ogor. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com or you can check out our Instagram. And also you can check out our list of unpleasant movies at Mubi. Right. Not totally comprehensive, but a, a bunch of stuff. A lot of good stuff there, truly. And that's it for this episode. Yeah. And uh, we will see you on the flip side. Dude, brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.